0: Good morning Grace Covenant. How is everyone this morning? Yes? Good? Okay. Good deal. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 if you will, please. And we are going to be going through the next portion of chapter 4 together today. (laughs) It's been a beautiful time coming into uh, today, starting this week uh, for this sermon The things that we uh, have the privilege of seeing that Paul wrote here are overwhelming, Uh, they're mesmerizing, it's a beautiful, beautiful text uh, as we get to focus on the ascension of our conquering king. Um, So Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read verses 8 through 12 together, so if you would please, in the honor of the one who gave us this word, please stand as we read uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Therefore it says when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended in him is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, the building up of the body of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come here this morning to worship with the body. It's so beautiful to see the spirit-filled believers here that are your elect singing praises to you for your grace. Um, I moved uh, by the encouraging words of hearing my fellow brothers and sisters sing uh, praises to you. It's, it's beautiful. And we thank you for that privilege. I pray that this text will impact our hearts and minds today, that the Spirit would take it um, and use that to further the kingdom, to further understanding of what the body, uh, is, how the body is made up and how it functions and, and all the beautiful things we see in the work of Christ and his ascension. I pray for me that you would remove any hindrances, remove any blocks from me, any nerves, and I pray that your Spirit would work within me to glorify you with the, the Scriptures today. In your holy name, I pray, Amen. All right, you can be seated. <coughs> um, as you notice, we kind of stopped mid-thought there in verse 12. Um, there's entirely too much to fit into one sermon to go with that thought and continue going. Um, so next week, uh, Pastor West will be preaching. Um, I'll be on my family. I will be on vacation next week, and so he graciously agreed to take that text. So he'll be taking 13 on, um, but I just want to let everyone know, yes, I know I stopped in the middle of a sentence. That's the best place to stop, honestly, with that thought process here. Um, so as we get ready to, to dive in here, there's a couple things I want to remind us of. A common theme of Ephesians um, throughout, he's mentioned it a couple times, is the conquest of Christ over rulers and authorities. And so Christ comes in, and Paul explains that Christ conquers The rulers and powers of the air, the authorities that have been set up, Christ is above those. Keep that in the back of your mind because it's going to make a lot of sense as we move through today's text. Um, And as we saw last week, I want to draw your attention to verse 7 as a way of reminding us where we came from. In verse 7, we were reminded that to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Paul is continuing this thought. I mean, you see in verse 8 that it says, therefore, and we have to know what the therefore is Therefore, And the, there is, uh, the therefore is therefore telling us what the gifts that Christ gave us. So we're going to break down some of those gifts. But the, the biggest thing I want us to see today, the title of the message is Christ's Purposes. Christ's Purposes. Christ had very specific purposes in what he was here to do. He was here to redeem the elect. He was here to fulfill the law. Um, he was here to, to take the wrath of God for sinners. But he was also here to be a conquering king, to ascend. One of the, the things that I think a lot of times in our, in our modern mindset, when we're describing the work of Christ, we tend to say that Christ lived, died, was buried, and resurrected. And then sometimes we stop there. How often do we stop? He was lived died, buried, and was resurrected, right? And we forget the ascension. I'm not saying that we forget it on purpose, but sometimes we just don't put as much focus on the ascension as we do the other aspects of the work of Christ. And what we're going to learn today in our text is the ascension is vitally important for the completion of the redemptive work. Um, We're going to see that Paul takes a text from Psalms and he brings it and, and applies it to Christ and we'll get to see the beauty and the purpose of Christ in ascending back to the Father. And so this is, it, it's, it's mesmerizing. We get to look into and have a small peek into what Christ was doing, his purposes, why he was here. And that the ascension, without the ascension, the church would not be here. Without the ascension, the church absolutely would not be here. And this, this impacts us every single day. If we don't understand the reason why Christ ascended and what came after that ascension, um, we have a very hard time living out the Christian life. So let's let's dig in together for this to, to really learn and wrestle with the ascension, understand what it means uh, and the depth of what he accomplished there. So first point, if you have the sermon notes, is the purpose of the ascension, the purpose of the ascension. So we're going to reread verses 8 through 10, and I'm going to kind of give some some aspects of where Paul is quoting and why he does what he does. So in verse 8, it says, Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. All things. So there's a couple of things I want to, to go over with you as far as culturally, as far as what the Jews expected when it talked about ascension. There's two aspects of the ascension of a king that we have to be aware of to understand what Paul is saying and why he's using the text. So to the Jew, to the reader of this particular letter, there's two aspects of the ascension that we have to be aware of. Number one, is it a conquering king? when he would return from conquering whatever city or wherever he was, whatever battle he was in, he would ascend into the highest point of the city, which was always his throne. That's simply the way they built the cities. The throne, that the palace was the highest point in the city. And so a conquering king would literally come in and ascend through the city streets with a train of spoils a train of captives slaves that he brought back from his conquered land and it would be this mighty procession to show his victory to show his power to show how strong this king was and he would ascend through the city taking back his throne that sound familiar at all and so the context of the Jews reading this would understand it slightly different. So the Greeks would think of um, the, the, the conquering king. Has anybody ever seen movies like maybe Gladiator or things like that where they come back from a conquering, um, uh, you know, Romanesque conquering? And they come and they march through the city and they've got all the flags and the banners and, and the, 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 the trumpets are blaring and there's this big party and they're throwing things from the, from the, 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 the houses and the, the just this celebration. And all the things that the conquering king has brought back is behind him. But the Jews would think of ascension in a different way. And, and Paul is going to show us how this, this Jesus fulfills both Jew and Gentile. You guys remember when we talked about in verse or excuse me, chapter 3 about the, the bringing together of the Jew and Gentile? Paul was writing in a way that both would understand the aspect of the ascension from their perspective. Because the Jew, when they think of ascension they think of going up to the temple or going up to the tabernacle. The tabernacle was always formed at the center of the camp at the highest point. Always considered at the highest point. And then the, the temple in Jerusalem was built on a mountain. So to go to God, you had to ascend to the tabernacle. You had to ascend to the temple. And so Paul is bringing this imagery together to show us why it is that he is using things like ascent, why it's important to understand Christ had to ascend to complete the redemptive work. In fact, in the book of Psalms, Psalms number 120 through 134 are actually called Psalms of Ascent. If you look at it, underneath the title of every single one of them, says a Psalm of Ascent. And that's talking about the Jews ascending to the temple, ascending to the tabernacle, and these, these Psalms of praise and worship to God for that. So the, the idea of ascension is extremely important in both cultures so keep that in your mind as we as we go through this because we get to see that that picture played out as christ ascends so if you would turn to psalm 68 verse 18 paul is quoting from the old testament psalm 68 and verse 18 is where he's quoting and we're going to tackle a, a kind of a disputed understanding of this and we're going to i'm going to explain both sides and tell you why uh, the position that, that we should have and the understanding that we should have based on what we know about Scripture. So Psalm 68 and verse 18, this is where Paul is quoting. In Psalm 68 it says, You have ascended on high, you have led captive your captives, you have received gifts among men. And then he goes on in the psalm to say, Even among the rebellious also that Yah, God, may dwell there. So Paul only quotes the first portion of this verse. But if you notice... If you look back and can keep your finger in both places, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, it reads, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. You may say, well, Josh, that's not a quote. That's more of a paraphrase. Paul changes some wording there. And the reason why I say it's kind of a contested verse is because there's a lot of speculation as to why Paul gets to change the wording of the verse. Um, because Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit (laughs) we we don't have the opportunity to change the Old Testament um, as Paul did Um, he's not changing in the true reason why and I'm going to explain this here in just a moment but I want us to understand uh, there are are some discussions in academia and in theology abroad that would tell us that we have to interpret the same hermeneutical methods that Paul does when when quoting the Old Testament and things like that And, and we have to understand Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit in giving us the Scriptures as the Spirit tells him to, so that we can understand Christ better. The goal of the Scriptures is to reveal Christ and God to us, is it not? And so Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does two things with the text in Psalm 68 to help us understand Christ's fulfillment. So if you take Psalm 68 as a whole, it's about the conquering of God, the, the conquest of God. It's in reference to Moses taking the captives out of Egypt and bringing them out into captivity of God, right? The captivity of God, the captives being led captive. And He changes the tense. Um, instead of it being, you have ascended, it says he has ascended. So he's applying this to who? He's applying this to Christ. Paul's applying this text to Christ And instead of Christ receiving gifts, Christ is giving gifts. So Paul is summarizing all of Psalm 68 in this conquering idea, and this idea of the one who has conquered and led captives, and who is ascending, this idea of the king doing what he set out to do, which was to defeat the enemies. And he's summarizing the entire psalm and applying it to Christ. Christ is the better moses christ is the antitype of the foreshadowing that we see in moses in israel so we see moses and israel in the old testament if you recall they were in slavery in egypt they were captive in egypt and moses came in and led them to freedom it was the exodus and we think of ourselves being led in exodus from sin right were we not captive to sin And yet Christ came and did the work and led uh, led us as captives into captivity of righteousness. We are all still captive. Every believer is still captive. We're simply captive to Christ. We're captive to righteousness. We are no longer captive to sin. And so we see Paul taking Psalm 68, summarizing it, and applying it to Christ as the greater Moses. As the one who came to fulfill the idea, the foreshadowing of Israel and Moses. And he came to give gifts to men. The main point of that psalm is to give the victory to God over his enemies. So those are some beautiful contrasts when we think of what Christ came to do. And the reason why we know this is what Paul is is saying is because there's other letters where he says the same thing without necessarily quoting a specific Text in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. It says, Paul writes, Who, although existing in the form of God, he's referencing Christ, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, the attention here, therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is portraying that same idea. In fact, later Jewish writings after the time that Paul wrote this actually say the same thing about Psalm 68, 18 and the the, the summary of what that particular (coughs) verse summarizing the entire psalm. So we know that Paul is accurately giving us what the Spirit would inspire for him to explain that Christ is the better Moses, the conquering king who ascended back to heaven upon his resurrection, taking the sacrifice that he had just made, into the temple of heaven before a holy father and gave that to him. And he led us as captives into captivity to his righteousness. We have a conquering king, folks. We serve a conquering king who ascended and set his authority in place because of that ascension. Do you see how, how pivotal the ascension is to understanding the redemptive plan? Now, I want to take just a moment and remember, remind us all, how many times does Paul reference himself? He even did it in verse 1 of this very chapter as the prisoner of Christ. Please remember, we are prisoners. We are captives to Christ. We are captives to righteousness. He did not set us free, just as he did not set Israel free to roam and do whatever they wanted to do. He set Israel free to be his people. We have not been set free from the captivity of sin and death to simply do as we, should, as we want, to simply live as however we would like, to simply follow our own ideas and moralities, our own philosophies. We are captive to Christ. We are captive to righteousness. Now, as, as we go on, Paul here, knowing that this is going to be something that he has to address, you can, you can see it, it's in parentheses in English, Greek doesn't have parentheses, but it's the way he words this next two verses in verses 9 and 10 that we know that he is explaining himself. He says in verse 9, now this expression, back in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 9 it says, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean, except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill All things. What we have to understand is this text here, just these two verses, has been used incorrectly to formulate a doctrine that Christ himself went to hell after his death. Um, This text does not say that. Um, I would disagree with that particular interpretation. It was an early church interpretation. You'll see it in things like the Apostles' Creed. Um, You'll see it in things like the Athanasian Creed. Um, You'll see it in places where the early church fathers interpreted this along with Hebrews, or excuse me, 1 Peter, a text there talking about Christ preaching to those in the depths. But what we have to understand is this is talking not about Christ uh, uh, descending into hell after his death. This is talking about the incarnation. This is talking about Christ coming to earth and putting on flesh, Him, him setting aside his throne, setting aside his glory, as the Son of God, a member of the triune Godhead, who is thrice holy, setting aside those aspects and coming and putting on flesh. There is no lower parts of the earth when you compare it to a holy God than simply becoming a human. That is the lower parts of the earth. And so Christ came and he put on this flesh to live As a man to fulfill, as our federal head, as as our representative to fulfill the law for the elect. And in order for him to ascend back to victory, does he not have to descend? We've already established what it means to ascend in victory, have we not? We've already established that for a king to have the full victory, he must bring his spoils back to his throne. In order to approach God, you ascended, the Jews ascended up to the mountain of God. So in order for Christ to fulfill the redemptive plan, to be the conquering king, to defeat death, to defeat all of those things that he came to defeat, he had to descend in order to ascend. Are we following the logic of Paul here? It's been said about this passage, these descriptions of Jesus presents a view that does not leave him only as a prophet or a messiah, but as one who has cosmic sovereignty, a description in a Jewish context reserved for deity. The Christ of glory fills the creation with his glory and gives gifts to his church to show himself at work. But that's what verse 10 now takes us as well. He, descended is, he who descended is himself also. He who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. So when you think about the analogy of the king returning through his city, through the kingdom that he runs, coming back to his throne with the spoils, think of Christ ascending through the very creation that he formed with the words of his mouth. And he ascended through the very creation, the very houses, if you will, of nature, through the heavens, through the spiritual realm coming to the highest point in creation, his throne. And he ascended there as a conquering king. And then he pours out and lavishes gifts upon his people. Unlike the Greek kings of old who would very rarely, only in certain acts of bravery bravery perhaps, give some of their leaders gifts. But the majority of the time, who kept the spoils of war? The king did and went into his treasury, right? That's how he, he built up his stature as a king, right? He wanted to be the better king, the king above the other kings in the, in the world. And yet Christ shows himself as the king of kings ascending in the very same fashion in a mightier way back to his throne. But there's another key aspect here that we have to understand. At the end of verse eight, it says, that he gave gifts to men. At the end of verse 10, it says, so that he might fill all things. In order for Christ to send the Spirit, he had to ascend back to his throne. So in order for the plan of redemption to be completed, he had to ascend back to the place of worship, back by the Father's side. Turn to John chapter 14, if you would john chapter 14 there'll be a couple of places that we'll look at in john but i want to show that christ i want you to see that christ himself speaks about not being able to stay with his disciples not being able to stay with the believers because it's actually better for us that he ascend. number one to complete the sacrificial process to to take his sacrifice to god number two to show that he is a conquering king And number three, to send us the gifts back to us, to fill up the earth, to fill up his elect with his spirit, because we could not survive. We would not be believers without the spirit within us. We would not all be sitting here if the spirit this morning did not graciously wake us, give us a desire to gather with the body and worship a king. Because in our flesh, we would all rather be asleep. There's no I mean, there's no... Like, let's be real. We've all worked all week. We... we, The the desires of our hearts change as the spirit works within us. And we are believers because of the work of the spirit. So we are literally here because Christ ascended. And he gave us his spirit. So let's, let's look at this. John chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 16. We're going to begin by reading 16 to 18. It says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, that he may be with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Drop down to verse 26 of that same chapter. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. I turn over to John chapter 16. This is a more lengthy one, but we're going to read John chapter 16, verses 7 through 15. That's John 16, verses 7 through 15. It reads, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, to, I said that he takes of mine, and will disclose it to you. Do you see? Christ himself, Christ himself says, it is better if I leave you, so that the Spirit may come. It is better that I ascend so that the Spirit may come. Do you realize, and sometimes, I, I think sometimes we, we miss this, do you realize we would not have the New Testament if Christ had not ascended? Because Christ himself has just said, if I don't go, the Spirit doesn't come. And if the Spirit didn't come, guess who would not have been inspired in the New Testament to write the words of Christ that we would know what he was saying just in this passage alone? Because Christ, God works differently in the New Testament, did he not? The Old Testament would have prophets, and they would write down what he told them to write down. But the New Testament, we we didn't have a single book of the New Testament until after the Pentecost, when the Spirit came. If Christ did not ascend as the conquering king, we would not be here. Do you see why I say we can't leave that off the work of Christ? Because he did live. Yes, he lived perfectly. He did die. He took the wrath for us. I'm not downplaying that. These are all equal steps in the redemptive process. So please understand, I'm not elevating any specific step. What I'm advocating for is not leaving off the last one. But he did die, and he took the wrath for us. And he died. And then three days later, he raised himself by defeating death. He raised himself of his own power. But it didn't stop there. He revealed himself to the disciples. He spent time with his people establishing his resurrection and then he ascended in a conquering manner he is the conquering king defeating death killing sin taking the keys of hell if you will back to heaven with his sacrifice and he sent his spirit back to us as a gift of the conquering king do you see the connection that Paul is making it's a beautiful connection because he's taking something that God wrote in the Old Testament that God had the writer of Psalm 68 lay down about his conquering of Egypt and his drawing out his people, and he's saying, Christ does it better. Christ is the better Moses. Christ is the one who fulfilled the law that Israel could not fulfill. Moses didn't even make it down the mountain. Christ is the better king. Christ is the better Israel. Christ is the better Moses. He is the conquering king. Yes, he's meek and he's merciful to his people, but do not dare bring our Savior down to the point where so many have. He is a conquering king, and we have victory because of that. And that's our application that I want us to walk out of here from point one with. I know it was a long point one, but I wanted, I wanted to really make sure that we grasped the, grasped the ascension. Because we cannot leave it off any longer. I was raised thinking that Christ lived, died, and rose again. You guys know the triplicate? Lived, died, and rose again. You guys know? Anybody in here register with that? He lived, died, and rose again. And then our king ascended. And we can rest in that. We have, we have victory because of that. We are united with the conquering king. He brings us to his table. He brings those who were captive, who were his enemies, and he brings them into a better captivity. We need to rest in that. That should drive us every single day to go, thank you, King. Thank you, Christ. You are the one who fulfilled what I could not fulfill. You are the one who are victorious. You are the one who marched back through your own creation and took back your throne and authority after sacrificing yourself. That is something we should rest in. That is something that we should rejoice in. That is something that we as captives should praise our captor for. And I know that sounds odd, doesn't it? But the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. We as captives should praise our captor and worship him. Let us make sure that this powerful, amazing, beautiful, awe-inspiring king, that we know he has won that victory and that he indwells us with his spirit. Okay, number two, the purpose of the gifts. The purpose of the gifts. So we know that Christ gave us gifts. We know that, that he has poured out his grace. We know in verse 7, remember we, we looked at it earlier, that all of us has received, each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And now so, he's going to give an example of these gifts. So let's read verses 11 and 12 together again. And he himself gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. So let's think about what we're seeing here. Um, You may originally think of, okay, well, I see apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors. I know there's other passages like this. You're right, there are. 1 Corinthians 12 probably comes to mind. Romans 12 probably comes to mind. But there's something I want us to understand. In the context of Ephesians, Paul is writing to the church as a unit to tell the church how to function as a unit. First Corinthians has some of that, but there's a lot of individual teaching and individual application. Ephesians as a whole, throughout, cover to cover, is about the body of Christ. Yes, there's principles that we can apply to our lives individually. But when you read this in context, you understand these gifts, his point is not the gifts. His point is what the body does with those gifts, how the body functions on a regular basis. And so this is going to be slightly different than those other lists of gifts, which are individual gifts, such as um, mercy or, or hospitality or some of the things that are listed in those other ones. So I want us to, to kind of separate ourselves out a little bit from those other gifts, lists of gifts, because this is being used differently. Here we have four gifts. Some would argue five. Um, it says apostles, some as apostles, some as prophets, some of us as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Paul intentionally leaves the article off of teachers, making him combine pastors and teachers. There's actually four gifts here. Pastors and teachers are equal because of how Paul specifically wrote it. He left the article off of teachers. But there's four gifts. Now I want us to think back through, as we walk through Ephesians together, think back through what Paul has used as analogies for Building up the body of Christ. What did he he use as an analogy? Did he not use a building? Building a building, the chief cornerstone. And what did he say was the foundation of that building? Christ and the apostles. And so we know that apostles are one of the foundational ways that the church was started. The apostles here are the, the 12. And Paul later on. But those who are specifically biblically apostles here are those who have witnessed Christ himself, who are, who are chosen by Christ himself. So that particular office is no longer active. I want to make sure I'm very clear on this. Paul is giving description as the church as a whole, the church universal, the church established at the time of Acts and forward. This office is no longer valid. If you receive emails from apostles from Africa, they aren't. Okay? But it says some as prophets. The canon is closed, folks. There are no longer prophets. The idea of prophet here are those who speak specifically for God. That is, Old Testament prophets and the New Testament writers. The canon is closed. The scriptures need no additions. There are no longer prophets. Those emails you can ignore, too. The prophets from Africa. You guys know what I'm talking about. So we have two offices that are named here that are no longer active. Then the third one I call semi-active and the evangelist. The evangelist was often seen as the help to the apostle and the prophet. He was an assistant. He was the one who shared the gospel and helped establish those things. Yes, there are some people who are evangelists, but not in the mindset of what we think, where people charge $5,000 to go from church to church to preach the same sermon over and over again. Yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about. That is not this office. <coughs> this office is... The evangelist who God calls out, I would call Jonathan Edwards, the office of an evangelist, right? Those great preachers of maybe the the first and second Great Awakening, or or those who are used by God, specially designed, who have a gift for traveling, who have the sacrificial idea of how many people can I share the gospel with to help reestablish or rejuvenate His His um, people throughout history. You'll see examples of some of the evangelists, but it's not a common. Office is not something that every necessary church has. We are to be, so let me clarify this, we all are all to be evangelistic. In other words, we are all to share the gospel, fulfill the Great Commission. But the office of evangelist is not a common thread. And the last one, pastors and teachers, is the last one that is still active. Active at every local body. Every church has to have a pastor and a teacher. Every pastor is a teacher. That's our role. That's As elders here, Pastor Wes and I are are here to help grow the body, to help grow the church, to equip the church. So as we can think back through our building blocks, let's let's apply our analogy to these offices. So we have Christ and the apostles as the foundation. Christ is the chief cornerstone, as Paul calls him. So he's he's the chief cornerstone, and the apostles have to line up with his teaching. So now we have our foundation in place. And then the prophets began building the lower portions of the walls, the foundational parts that are attached to that foundation, attached to Christ and the apostles. And they gave us the word of God. And, and that's where we build our walls from there. The bricks are being built up. The evangelist was putting in new bricks as, he, as they shared the gospel. And now what does the, 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 the pastor and the teacher do? They strengthen those walls. Think of mortar being poured into those bricks. And they, and they take and they, they fashion and they form and they sand and they make sure everything is... Together and they grow this body into a mature body, not of their own power. What did, what did we just learn in the last few verses? That this comes from Christ, this is the gift of God through Christ. It's been said about this particular passage, his focus, meaning Paul, is on the gift of grace, evidence in the composition of God's family as Jew and Gentile are made one in Christ and now together grow into maturity in this new body. So here's where things get a little hairy compared to what modern American evangelicalism has turned the church into. The word here in verse 12, so we know what the offices are for, we know why they're, they're there. In verse 12 it says that these offices, so the leadership of the church we would all agree that the leadership of the church has been described. So in verse 12, the leadership is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. The word there for equipping means to outfit, to ready. In the last 125 years, there has been an uprising in the idea that the layperson, the congregation, and the church is to leave all ministry to the, to the, to the leadership and that we are to come and consume church service. And that we are just come. The body is here to just, just come be, invite some friends, right? Let's, let's see how seeker the, the, the leaders can be. Can they, can they get people to come in who aren't believers? Is that what the text says? The text says that the body of Christ is for the leaders to equip, also as members, but to equip the body to do the works of service. The body is to do the works of service. Of service the body is not consumers, they are workers. The body of Christ is not a social club to be entertained by leadership. The body of Christ is so that the leaders who have a special gifting, according to what Paul just said, does he not say in verse 7 that Christ gives each a measure of grace according to his own choice? And now he's describing how that measure of grace is poured out through the Spirit upon the ascension. And he's saying, to then apply this measure of grace as the leaders, our job as elders, Wes and I, is to equip you to do the work of service. What does that look like practically? Does that mean that you go home and you see your neighbor out in the yard and he could really use the gospel? I know they're not, not saved. Pick up the phone and call Pastor Wes! Wes! come over and share the gospel with my neighbor. That is the exact opposite of what this text is saying. But what it is saying is it is our job to ensure to the best of our ability by sacrificing and by teaching and pastoring that you are equipped to share the gospel in that moment. That is our job. By the power of the Spirit and by His grace. But your job is to go and do the work of service. That is not only outside of these walls, outside of this body, that is inside this body. Our job is to equip each of you to graciously challenge one another and build one another up in Christ. Our goal is not to entertain. Our goal is not to have places that will make unbelievers feel comfortable enough to come into Unbelievers are as welcome as they can be in this building, but this building is not for, this body is not for unbelievers. It is for the equipping of the saints. That's what the text says. Our job is not to bring unbelievers here and make them feel welcome. I want them to feel welcome. Please don't. But we're not changing the gospel to make them feel comfortable. Our job is to equip the saints. That is our job. It says it right there. Because your job is to then build up the body of Christ. Because if we're doing what we are called to do by God's gracious gift, through the work of Christ in us, through the spirit and unity with him, you then are equipped to go build up the body of Christ. Your job is to add more bricks to the wall. Our job is to then take those bricks and make sure they're fitted, mortared, because then they're part of the body, right? So as you share the gospel and you build up the body of Christ, not only helping those in the body to mature, But then bringing in new bricks, our job is to then teach and pastor them to equip them to continue to build up the body of Christ. Do you see the process that Paul is laying out? And all of it comes back to the Spirit. All of it comes back to an ascending king who conquered death, who conquered everything, took back his throne after walking through his creation and gave us these gifts to do what he asked us to do because it is all of God. It is all of Christ. We are here because of Christ. It is vitally important to understand that the body as a whole is to do the work of the service of the saints, to build one another up into maturity. That is your job. That is your calling. And yes, we are part of the body as well. So I'm not saying that we don't do those types of things as well. But the primary responsibility for building the body of Christ, according to Paul, right here in black and white, is the body, the members. Our job is to equip you to be able to do that. That that does ruffle some feathers. If it does for you, I'm sorry. But then again, I'm not sorry. Because that's what the text says. That goes antithetical to what the modern American evangelical church does. Think of any megachurch or secret-sensitive church in the area, and you will think of lasers and smoke and helicopters dropping eggs and meals and free food and all the things. It's prevalent in this area. And I'm not, please understand, I'm not doubting their motivations because I think their motivations are, let's, let's, let's grow the kingdom of God, but it's not being done the way Scripture says to do. Okay. So let's be true to Scripture, Grace Covenant. Let's be true to Scripture. Let's build relationships. Let's unify around Christ. Let's understand that Wes and I's job is to help equip you to go do the work that you are called to do. The primary application of this passage as a whole is to understand that the ascension, the conquering king... He gave us the gifts to complete the very thing that Paul has called us to over and over again in this text. That is to be united as a body of believers under the banner of our King. And it works itself out in all these different ways. It works itself out in different gifts. It works itself out in leaders building up the body, and the body, building up the, the members, building up the body of the Christ, the saints being equipped for the work of service. But it all boils down to one thing. We serve a conquering king who gave us his spirit as a gift. We serve a conquering king who ascended in glory, who is the better Moses, who is the better Israel, and that we are the body of Christ. And Christ is our focus. And that we are equipped by him. And that's the purposes of Christ. That's that's the purposes that, that, that Paul lays out here. Christ ascended for a very specific purpose. Christ fills us for a very specific purpose. The pouring out of his spirit and the giving of gifts to some for the purpose of equipping the body as a whole for the work that their conquering king has called them to do. And this is just a glimpse that we have in the purpose of Christ. I'm, I'm not advocating that I have given all the purposes of Christ or, or, or would think myself even remotely worthy to speak on behalf of the, the inner workings of the mind of the Trinity. Okay, so please understand that. I'm not saying this is all covered in this one sermon, but the text here and the purposes that Christ has revealed to Paul to write to us is very clear. When you look at Psalm 68 and you see what the meaning of it is there, and then you see Paul apply it to Christ, there's no question what we are to do. I know it seems like I stopped in the middle of of a thought, and I kind of did in verse 12, but I'm excited for Wes next week to come back and tell us how this plays out. Because Paul goes into more detail if you read 13 through 16 and you prepare for his sermon next week, I would encourage you to do that. Paul goes into more detail about the maturing of the body and how this works and what it looks like real time and the practical applications of it. But I want you to leave here today in awe of the ascension of our King. In just... The the beauty of the small glimpse that we have into understanding what Christ accomplished when he went back. Because so so many times as a kid, you guys remember those 70s-ish cartoons about the disciples and Christ ascending and it's all cartoony and he just kind of disappears in the clouds and you're like, okay, that's cool. But you don't understand, we don't understand until we see this in scripture, what that meant. Meditate Um, on that. And then we have to understand our position as captives of this conqueror and our roles as a body in building one another up. It's paramount to continuing to mature the body of Christ. If this body is to be effective as God has called us to be, we must continue to mature. And that is done by the leadership equipping the saints to build one another up. It couldn't be more clear. This is a closed-handed issue. That's what this text means. There's no other way. It's, it's, it's black ink on white paper. I, I don't really have any other way of saying it. So let's unify around our king, and we're going to come back to the table here in a minute. And I want you to go ahead and start thinking of it because that's how I'm going to apply it. We are at the table of the conquering king. Hold on, I'll, I'll, I'll say that here in a minute. Okay. So as I prepare to close, I want you to think and meditate on that. We are our sons and daughters of the conquering king, Let that carry with you through the week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity today to look at the beauty of your ascension, to look at what you accomplished by your strong power, that you took us as captives to sin, and you led us into captivity of righteousness. And we are the only captives in history that can praise their captor and love their captor and be united with their captor. And I pray that these gifts that you have poured out on us as the conquering king would be used for your glory. That the leadership would be committed to equipping the saints by using your scriptures, by the power of the Spirit to equip them to build one another up, to build up the body of Christ. And I pray that we would apply this to our hearts, that we remember it as we gather around the table in a few moments in remembrance of what you've done and looking forward to the time that you come back to bring your captives home with you how excited we are and how awe-inspiring it is and how amazing it is to see the purposes that you have and what you've done. We glorify you and thank you in your holy name. Amen.